Hi everyone, my name is Jose Sanchez. And I'm Jen Tosleib. Welcome to episode 90 of the Criminology Academy podcast, where we're criminally academic. In this episode, we're speaking with Professor David Weisberg. David Weisberg is Distinguished Professor of Criminology, Law and Society at George Mason University and the Walter E. Meyer Professor of Law and Criminal Justice at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. His current research interests are focused on the criminology of place, policing, and research methods. He has received several awards, such as the Stockholm Prize in Criminology, the American Society of Criminology Sutherland Award, the American Society of Criminology's August Fulmer Award, and the Israel Prize, among many others. In today's episode, we discuss two of David's papers, the first one titled The Law of Crime, Concentration, and the Criminology of Place, which was David's 2014 Sutherland Address. It was published in 2015 in Criminology, and the second one titled Reforming the Police Through Procedural Justice Training, a multi-city randomized trial at crime hotspots, co-authored alongside Cody Tellup, Heather Vovac, Heron Zastro, Anthony Braga, and Brandon Tershan. It was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2022. With that being said, let's bring David in. Thank you for joining us today, David. We really appreciate you taking time out of your day to speak with us today, and we look forward to talking about some of your work. Happy to be here. All right, so we want to begin by discussing your 2014 Sutherland Address titled The Law of Crime Concentration and the Criminology of Place. Uh, it was published in Criminology in 2015. And I really want to get us started with the discussion of what the criminology of place or crime and place actually is. So just big, broad question. What is crime concentration? Yeah, I think it's not a very complicated idea in some ways. If you go back historically, when criminologists have understood the crime problem, they think of large areas. Going back to the 19th century with the European criminologists, they often looked at large districts uh, in France or uh, large areas in, in Britain. But these were administrative areas of which data were available. And the crime problem, I think, then began to be thought of in terms of regions, areas. In other words, large geographic regions. In the U.S., that finds its place with the Chicago School, which uh, put forward the idea of communities as being you know, the important unit by which we should study the crime problem. And communities or neighborhoods were large, right? There was some area of a crime in place or the criminology of place. It focuses us on those very specific places, not communities, but hotspots where crime is concentrated. By the way, just as a historical aside, you know, it's interesting because the Chicago School didn't mention the 19th century geographic chronologist at all. And uh, David Greenberg told me, or wrote me a note after he saw my book on the criminology of place. He said, one of these Chicago School people at his house for dinner, and uh, who was at this time much older, and who said they knew about it, but they didn't mention it because they thought if they mentioned a European context, it would hurt people's willingness to accept their ideas. That's a kind of strange idea. Yeah. but. Nonetheless, interesting. But the, the point here is the crime concentration, the law, law of the criminology of place or crime place, it takes us from this larger view of the crime problem as being a problem of communities or neighborhoods. And it pushes us down to specific places where crime is concentrated. You also discuss the criminology of place, which is enmeshed with crime concentration. So kind of building off of that. What is the criminology of place and how did this area of research get started within criminology? Yeah, so I'll tell a personal story, which puts this in context. 
often when you, you have new ideas, they come from a, a place you might not expect it. When I was finishing my, my doctorate at Yale, I needed to get a real job for a bit. I had a young family. <laughs> and Stan Wheeler was one of my mentors at Yale. He put me in contact with the Vera Institute of Justice in New York City. And Vera does sort of policy-related work, applied criminological work. And I went to Vera and they said, oh, great, you know, we have a project we'd like you to run, which was one of the early community policing. And that project, what they did was they took a large area, the 72nd Precinct in Brooklyn, they put in that area, they picked out nine beats, they called it. They were 15 square blocks. They weren't the whole precinct, but they were pretty large areas overall. And for each of those areas, they assigned a community police officer who would walk this beat five days a week. And my job was to walk the beat with the cop and to observe what they were doing. And I learned an awful lot about policing. And I think it's a great experience for a scientist, not only to sit in the ivory tower, but to make the scene. But anyway, at that time, it wasn't very common. And if I wouldn't have had this hiatus the year before I finished my doctorate, where I needed to do something out there, I might not have done it. But anyway, so that's it. I walked the, the beat with cops. Now, each of these areas could be considered a small neighbor. And what's going on in the background is when I went to graduate school, I think still to some degree, when people think about the crime problem, they start with the Chicago school, with delinquency areas, whereas whole areas like these beats were whole areas that were bad areas of town in the 72nd precinct in Brooklyn. And that's what, how I walked into these areas. In other words, bad area of town. And I had this image in my mind of an area in which crime was spread throughout the area. Now, so here I am walking the streets with these, right? Coming from the sociology department at Yale University, thinking of myself as very smart and having a good background, right? And what do I see? These cops and I are spending most of our time on one or two streets out of like 20 or 30, you know, streets around the intersection or between the intersection, single streets. So they had this whole broad community or neighborhood or, or area. And all the time was spent in a few blocks. And I didn't know what to do with that, honestly. I didn't know what to do. It didn't fit. I didn't have a, a theory to go with that. This right. was before Conan Felsen, or about the same time, actually, whatever. But it's still, it wasn't like as a sociologist, I had a strong idea about these sorts of problems. And that really begins the study of crime place and crime concentration. Because I looked at it and I said, wow, that's really interesting. Eureka, you know, that's really interesting. This is supposed to be a bad neighbor. Now, a lot of the neighborhood was not, you know, wealthy or, you know, it wasn't that it was like a rich area or anything. And there were lots of social problems, other social problems in this neighborhood overall. But crime was concentrated on very specific streets. Now, that leads to the idea of hotspots. I called it initially small worlds of crime, but led to hotspots. That experience in the 72nd precinct, which was not meant to be about that, but meant to be about community policing. And I did learn a lot about community policing and policing more generally. That begins a lifelong fascination with changing, if you like, the way in which criminologists think about the crime problem. Whereas criminologists traditionally think about the crime problem, the neighborhood level, and all of a sudden I saw, it's not fair to see the whole neighborhood as a problem. When I did a study of crime concentration in Seattle, the mayor read the book, Criminology of Place, and he wrote in his blog or something. Oh, I now reckon he said, like, we shouldn't be calling this a bad area. There are lots of good places in this area without a little crime, et cetera. But that begins in the 72nd precinct. And it's the essence. When I received the Stockholm Prize, the title of my, the first slide, my prize, 
a lecture was, everything I needed to know, prime concentration, I learned the 72nd precinct in Brooklyn in 1985. That dates me a bit compared to you guys, but <laughs> nonetheless, that's where it all began. That's really cool that you had this personal experience that kind of developed into a career making, really. It feels like a lot of people that we talk to, they kind of have this moment that they maybe weren't expecting to kind of develop their research interests and what they were focusing on for the rest of their career. So first of all, you know, there's a great description of this in the book Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Goldrock. You know, it was a bestseller. And he spends a whole section of the book talking about my birth in the 72nd precinct and how this insight, he said, which I gained there, turns to have tremendous potential for improving our understanding of the problem. But it really did begin there. I'll tell you, it's interesting. There's another, you raised my 2015 Southern address. So that's another, that address really is about another eureka moment. So here I am since the 72nd precinct. And after that, the first real advance in my thinking and research in this area was the Minneapolis Hotspots experiment with Larry Sherman. I can talk about that more later if you'd like me to, but I think it's important in understanding the translation of this idea of hotspots to prevention. But anyway, so this idea stuck with me. And I'd recommend to young people, don't be too caught up in the idea of a moment. Get interested in something that really intrigues you and keep going with it and follow through in it. So I had this idea, right? And the idea was twofold. One was about the fact that crime was concentrated. The second, however, was about the fact that it was concentrated, but there was tremendous heterogeneity or variability. In other words, you could have crime concentrated at only 5% of streets in the city, all the streets could be in the same neighborhood. That's not what I was finding. I found tremendous spread of crime. So hotspots often were just sitting there and around them cold spots. But anyway, so I go next and I do a, I want to do a basic research project. Sometimes in our field, it's easy to get support for evaluations or programmatic things, but I want to do some basic research on this thing I observed. I couldn't figure out how to translate what I'd seen, right? In other words, what you see, what you feel when you walk the street, you see around you. It's hard to translate into a book, let's say, or into mm -hmm. an article. So I, a few years later, probably a decade later, a long time to you, I suppose, but I went out to get funding for a study, a longitudinal study of street segments. And I was able to get funding from the National Institute of Justice, and we did our study. There was actually two studies. The first study I did with Cynthia Lum, who's now a very important criminologist at Mason University, at George Mason University. Liz Groff, who worked with me in the second part of this, and uh, Suming Yang. Liz is at Temple University, is a professor there, and Suming Yang at, at Mason. I'm very, I'm very proud of my students who succeeded incredibly. Uh, it's a great, uh, in Yiddish is the word nachas, getting pleasure out of the achievements of others. It's great when your students are, are doing great. But anyway, so we got this study and we found, I went looking around the country and fortunately I found a police department where I knew the, the police chief who had been in Washington before that as the head of the Office of Community-Oriented Policing Services. Or actually, I'm not sure which came first, but I knew met him along the way then. And in Seattle, they had, I was able to get 20 years or turned out 15 years we could actually analyze of crime data. At the, in which we could bring things down to the XY coordinate level and then to the streets and intersection to intersection. So we collect all this data and we, we look at the data. And the first thing I notice is that every year, 
in Seattle. For the 15 years we studied, 5% of the streets produced 50% of the crime. Now, that was important for two reasons. One was there was a, and there had been crime concentration studies earlier. I did one with Larry Sherman in Minneapolis. Larry did one with other colleagues in Minneapolis. So there were studies, for example, at the address level, I'd done a study at the more than one study, I guess at that point, also Jersey City at the street level. But nonetheless, here I am looking at this data. It's great data. It's over 15 years. And what do I see? 50% of the crime is found just 5% of the street segments every single year. Wow. Now, what would you say if you saw that? Wouldn't that be like, well, I knew crime was concentrated. By this time, this is after Larry and myself and John Eck and a bunch of other people had already begun to identify crime concentration. But every year, 5% of the streets produce 50% of the crime. So that was fascinating to me, okay? And that's the beginning of the law of crime concentration. I said, if crime is not only concentrated, it's concentrated in an incredibly consistent way. Then right after that, about the same time, I'm doing a study in Tel Aviv. Now, Seattle and Tel Aviv are not the same. Seattle, Mountain City, (laughs) West Coast of America, ethnically, I guess, white, Asian American, I don't know, Tel Aviv, you know, 95% 95% Jewish, 5% Arab on the beach. <laughs> it's yeah. a great city to visit. It's beautiful. You, know, like you go from your hotel onto one of those beautiful beaches in the world, right? So now I'm doing a study in Tel Aviv through a student of mine who worked in the Ministry of Public Security. We have data. And he comes and he says, oh, you know, I just analyzed the data. And you know what? 5% of the streets produce 50% of crime. Same like, thing. Really? <laughs> really? It's is that right? You want to check that again? And then I'm doing a study with Cody Tellup, another very talented student of mine who's a professor as a state now, fantastic scholar. Anyway, so Cody and I, another colleague, are, are doing a study in New York State. And what do we find? 5% of the streets produce 50%. Yeah. So that was like, I don't know about other people, but for me, those moments, you haven't published yet. You haven't done anything yet. I'm not sure even what to do with it yet. But I said to myself, wow, that is so interesting. And that is the source of the 2015 subway. It was so interesting to me. It's a descriptive finding, by the way, you know, mm-hmm. and I couldn't figure out how to make it to a typical journal article. So fortunately for me in the Southern Award, you can write a, an article for criminology. It's now the third most cited article over the th- last three years in criminology. So, yeah, but it grows out of this observation. That is so. In- now, there's another observation I'd like to just another one of these kind of eureka ideas. There's so something where I could visualize this allowed me to tell my story. Like, this is pretty interesting, right? Like, I'm telling you the story. It's pretty interesting, right? It allows me to tell my story like the 72nd Precinct one. I had no idea in the 72nd Precinct, the 5% of the streets produced 50% of the crime or whatever. But at the same time, I knew the crime was constant. But that other idea, remember, that really comes out of these early observations. And they were, look, I was, I'm very quantitative. I don't know if you know, but I've written textbooks and statistics. Mm-hmm. So, and here I am walking the streets, qualitative stuff, <laughs> speaking to people. And there's this observation. So in Seattle, I had the great fortune for this research I did in Seattle. By the way, the other colleague in the New York study was Brian Lawton. But anyway, in the, for the study in Seattle, I had this great fortune of a student who came to work with me, Elizabeth Gra- Liz Gra. She's a fantastic person with 
who was a crime analysis, has a geography degree. Indeed, I co-chaired her PhD in geography and got her to work with me on this Seattle study, uh, the second stage of it, which we collected lots of data, but she has great GIS talent. So I didn't know how to visualize what I had found. And there is Liz Groff. What a, you know, life has a habit of bringing you what you need sometimes. And Liz is a geographer. And so if you look at our book, The Criminology of Place, we have color maps, right? Take a look at that book. And so she produced these color maps. We had done a trajectory analysis, group-based trajectory analysis. In other words, there are, I think, about 16,000 or 20,000, I'm not remembering exactly, uh, street segments in, it's 24,000 street segments in Seattle. And what we did was we identified their trajectories over a 16-year period, I believe, and a little longer than the first study. And we gave each segment a trajectory, right? So, and we divided those up into a group of trajectories. One, for example, chronic, a chronic crime trajectory. The chronic crime trajectory over the 15 years of the study produced between 22 and 25% of the crime, right? Like mm. not different from what the other things were finding. Yeah. But anyway, then we were able to put these on. And there you have what I observed in New York City in the 72nd precinct many years earlier, which is you can see in the map, they have hot spots of crime, red, and right next to them are cold spots and cool spots. And mm -hmm. that you have this heterogeneity across the map. Well, that is a tremendously interesting thing, right? Because your gut feeling would be, they'd be like this whole area, right? Well, it wasn't that way. Right. I'm not saying there's never two red spots right after another. When you go down a main street, a main shopping street, there's often red spots right after another. But then there's a break for some reason. Sometimes that's some sort of facility or something else. But if you look at the, at the map overall, it emphasizes not the degree to which near each other alike, which is you know, a first principle of geography, but the degree to which places near each other often differ from the level of crime. But if you think about your experiences in the city, and these are cities, I don't think it's so strange because quite often the hotspot might be a bus stop right around some shopping. Well, the next show could be single family homes that are not attractive places for crime. But anyway, so there's another moment where here you have, I love that, you know, this map and there I have, it. I could show people it's yeah. saying it and showing. Right. Yeah. You can do some cool stuff with GIS for sure. And that's where working with colleagues, you know, if you do, I'd have to name like 40 people to be parents, all the people, students, especially I've worked with over time who have played an important part in what is the emergence of, I think, new and important ideas in criminology, new ways of thinking. As Frank Cook put it, he forgot about those hot spots when he went to Columbia and myself and others brought that back our vision. And, yeah. you know, I think this work has had impact, which is great. Yeah. So I just, because I don't know a lot about this subject. So just something to clarify this for me. I know you're talking about micro geographic units or locations. Just how small can these hotspots be or do they differ in size? You know, this is a, I won't call it an argument, but this is a kind of discussion when people are working. John Eck, for example, loves the idea of facility. It's a certain building on the block. I like the idea of street segments for two reasons. Coming from sociology, I guess, I think in terms of community, these street segments act like microgeographic communities. In other words, like if you, this is the way my street is. Like I have an next door neighbor who had a big dog and she used to walk the dog every day. The mailman comes, you know, like there's things going on in that street. 
You know the person across the street, the person next door. You have no choice but to know them usually, right? In big apartment buildings, it may be a little less like that. But all I think, people who live on the same street have interaction. To cross the street, that intersection in a city means something. Now, I'm not saying that sometimes when you want to do something about the crime problem, the streets may connect in some way. A drug market that goes across a few streets, a prostitution site in which they walk up and down like a few side streets together. So depending on your interest, you might define the hotspot in different areas. But these small areas are different from the precincts, beats that have fascinated police, the communities, neighborhoods that have fascinated community criminologists for the most part. I think Rob Sams now agrees that the street segment is a sort of first step community in the building of community. There are many different levels of community. People in a city are part of one community. People in a neighborhood are part of one community. Well, people in a street. I also like the street segment for another reason, for a methodological reason. First of all, since we're often using police data, police often get things wrong. Do you think they get the right address every time? Like it's 2222? No, it's like, oh, that's over there. 2222. They're not likely to get 2200 block different from the 2100. Whereas once they cross the intersection, they know where they are. So I think this data is more accurate. But I like the idea of a unit that has social as well as criminological. So as you've been talking, now, at first glance, it would appear there would appear to be similarities to crime and place and social disorganization work of Shaw and McKay, where they found that crime was concentrated in certain areas in Chicago across generations. So they concluded that there was something about the place and not necessarily the people. What would you say are some key differences between the crime and place approach versus Shaw and McKay's work? Look, the, the Chicago school was mostly focused on the idea of community, areas. And in Chicago, by the way, there was a lot of meaning to that. There was, if you look at their maps, they have, I think they called a Negro area at the time, you know, a Black area. There was a Jewish area. There was an Italian area, right? And they looked at these as sort of distinct communities within a larger community. They thought of rings in a city, right? They, they were thinking in large area. And their interest was in informal social. So they focused on place. And the, the place they were interested in was much larger than the place I yeah. What I would say is that the when you focus on that larger unit, which has meaning as well, I'm not saying community criminology has been thought of as wrong per se. I'm saying that there's more going on here. If you have street by street variability, like one street has a lot of crime, think of what happens when you think only of community. You have what's called an averaging effect. That was once called the ecological fallacy. In other words, you think this is a low crime community. It may have high crime hotspots in that community, but on average, you get that misses an element. By that averaging misses, you can get a lot of error by averaging. Sometimes you can get it right if all the streets are bad, but that doesn't happen many times in my school. So I think that the ideas brought by the Chicago school, they're important for what they were finding for us about communities, if you like, but they miss something about where crime was actually occurring. And that missing that something is an important miss. Sort of calling a whole area a delinquency area misses the fact that most streets in the area don't have much delinquency, right? And that's something quite important. So I okay, think yeah. by, by looking at the criminology of place, we expand our understanding of the crime problem by bringing it down to a much lower level. And there's some contribution, actually, I think, and sometimes more contribution at that local level than at higher levels of the hierarchy of crime and community. I'll say something else, though. Most people who work in this area, 
have been interested in opportunity. The theoretical perspectives that most supported the idea of the criminology of place, going to Larry Sherman and his colleagues' original article, The Criminology in Place, I believe in the 19, late 1980s. The, but in that case, the, the theory that they focused on was routine activity. Because routine activities gave you, I mean, how does a crime occur? You have the presence of a suitable target. You have the, the presence of a, a motivated offender, the absence of a capable guardian, and it occurs in a place, right? So that's a lot about opportunities. What are, what are the opportunities for crime in that situation? Situational prevention also focuses in in a similar way. Those theories in some way are a reaction to the traditional sociological theories about crime. I mean, Conan Felsen say it directly, and so does Ron Clark, and they say it often when they speak. They were reacting against these broad sociological theories brought about informal social control, brought by Shaw, McKay, and others in the Chicago school in the first half of the 20th century. I have a different view, actually. I think opportunity plays a key part in the production of crime at a microgeographic level. If you look at juvenile crime in Seattle, the hotspots, where are they? Bus stops, juvenile activity spaces, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So opportunity, right? In our work on uh, Seattle, we found things like businesses in the street, size of population, all those opportunity features were important in predicting the level of crime. But in new research, about 10 years ago, I went to the National Institutes of Health for a large basic research study on crime hotspots. Now, why the National Institutes of Health? Well, you know, the most famous bank robber of all time, I think his name was Willie Sutton. That might be his name, but he was on the, Johnny Carson was, I guess, you know, the, the nighttime shows they have. Today, we have obviously a lot of them, different ones, but, and Johnny Carson asked him, uh, Willie, why do you rob banks? And his response was, because that's where the money is. So why did I go to the National Institutes of Health? I'd never gone there before because I realized I needed a $3 million or more budget to do the kind of study I wanted to do, which is I wanted to study the social aspects of hotspots. I wanted to know who lived there. And you can't get that data. One of the reasons why people are focused on communities is you can get that data from the census. You can't get data on hotspots from the census. They will not release it. In Israel, I've gotten some. In general, they won't release it. I had to go to these places. So we did a, a longitudinal study over it in five and seven years total, I guess it looks at, which we did three waves of surveys. We did observations, collected crime data. But the three waves of surveys, we chose about 450 streets, about 300 of them were hotspots of different types, and about 150 were cold or cool spots. About 50 were actually cold spots, in other words, basically no crime. And then we, we studied them. We did ethnographic observations. We did between three and 4,000 surveys each wave, right? And one of the reasons I did that was because in the Seattle study, I'd used a proxy measure of informal social control, or Rob Sanson calls collective efficacy. Are people willing to intervene? Do they coalesce with their neighbors? Those two things are looked at, as Rob looks at it, as the direct measure of what was conceived of as informal social control in the Chicago school. Now we call it collective efforts. But anyway, so I used a proxy measure and found that not only opportunity features of places led to crime, led to these places being hotspots, but also this factor, we use voting behavior, people that consistently vote. But that got criticized by some of my students and colleagues, Ron Clark among them and Anthony Braga, like bringing in the social disorganization thing. What are you doing, David? Not relevant. So I, part of the problem was a measurement problem. I didn't have a direct measure of collective. So we collected that measure in these data <laughs> from 
on all these streets. And we found there were tremendous, large and significant differences between hotspot streets and cold start streets in collective FC. And collective FC seems to be a significant predictor of just about all the things we look at, level of crime, calls to the police. You know, it's really out there, which only reinforces my sense of the street segment as an important unit for understanding the crime problem. And what happens is that these street segments that are very hot, people are less likely to trust their neighbors, they're less likely to be involved with people, et cetera. Now, I don't want to go the other extreme because I'm writing something now in which I'm also very interested because even on these hotspots, it's not like they have no informal social. There's actually great potential there, which is important for understanding. But anyway, so I've drawn from the Chicago School. This made Rob Sampson very happy in terms <laughs> of the development of this work. But I think that I don't think there's an exclusive theory for why crime is occurring in microgeographic units. Yeah. I think you have to draw from all the theories and test them. There's no question that routine activity theory, crime pattern theory from the Branninghams, uh, situational prevention from Ron Clark, all of those were key factors in opening up our vision so we could study hotspots of crime. But at the same time, those hotspots of crime have social features to make them hotspots. Just one quick more comment. We're writing a book now for Cambridge University Press, in this case with uh, Claire White, or Claire Ugin now, uh, Beatty Dong, and, and a new student of mine, Yi Song Kyun. In this book, we looked at we divided communities into high concentrated disadvantage. Excuse me. Right. We divided the communities. In other words, we picked streets within communities, right? So we took the communities. In Baltimore, we did this study. There's a community map, if you like, and we use that and link that to census data. And we divide the communities into high concentrated disadvantage, moderate concentrated disadvantage, and low concentrated. And then we, we looked at there are hot spots and cold spots and hot spots and non-hot spots in all these communities. It's interesting. In other words, in the low disadvantaged communities, there are hot spots, though fewer of them. In the high disadvantaged community, there are lots of cold spots and cool spots, more cool spots to some degree, but also cold spots. What did we find? We found that a hotspot is more similar in collective efficacy. A hotspot in a high disadvantaged community and a hotspot in a low disadvantaged community are more alike to each other than they are to other streets. Wow. And that, I think that tells you about the importance of thinking of the microgeographic. Yeah, that's surprising. Okay, so in your Sutherland address, um, the paper that we're discussing, you one of the big arguments that you make is that criminology should shift from the micro-level theories that have dominated the field for what seems like an eternity now and study a macro-level theories around crime and place. So we mentioned this was your 2014 Sutherland Address. It got published in 2015. So it's been almost 10 years since you wrote this up. And we just wanted to get your thoughts on the field has, you know, heated your, your warning or kind of followed your, your advice and doing more research in crime and place. And so where do you still think that we need to shift more towards that area? Yeah, look, even in 2015, you could see the beginning of a trend for more research on microgeographic criminology or crime place. But it's still a very small percentage of traditional criminology. And by the way, you know, criminology, think of the discipline, what happens, you you send your paper to criminology and criminology sends it out for review, whatever. The conventional, the people that are the majority speaker, that's what's happening. You're being reviewed often by people who are committed to areas of community and crime, et cetera. And I'm not saying they're prejudiced. I think it's just a natural thing. Even today, I get sometimes like, why is this important, Dave? 
right? Like, why is this work important? Well, I'm like, why is your work important? <laughs> We're still in the position of saying why it's important. I think there's more research in this area. I think we still need more research than that. And there's complications in our field because there are issues that come up, like inequality or other things that demand people's attention, and rightfully so, especially in difficult times. I think overall, if we want to understand crime, there has to be a greater investment in crime place. I'll tell you, two, I'll tell you something, though. What's intrigued me, uh, what I'm doing now, two, I'm going to tell you about two things I'm doing now. One is a, a grant I received from the National Science Foundation, in which we're looking, it turns out all of a sudden, there's lots of open access data at the microgeographic level on crime. We've identified uh, something like 65 cities of over 150,000 population. And now we're going down to 100. I think we're, we've got like 80 cities. I'm not sure the data will be good for all of them. But we now have, let's say, a pretty large sample of cities to which to look at the law of crime concentration. What I said when I wrote that up was, clearly crime is concentrated and it seems to be incredibly consistent. But now the question is, what is the bandwidth? In other words, how consistent is it? Because even if that bandwidth were three to six, that's a lot of variability, actually, when you're looking at the, especially in the extreme of the distribution. Indeed, there's a sort of confusion in this literature. But the way I've always done this is, what percent of the streets produce 50%? And what I found is it's pretty close to 5%, whatever you do. And this new study, by the way, I did a lit review. And I found, I believe, something like almost 60 cities, more than 60 cities, which they've done research like I did. You might call them replication of one type. And it's amazing. They all fall around from like 2 to 3% to like 6 or 7 or 8%. There's one or two cities we found in South Africa and in the Czech Republic, I believe, where the concentrations were 10 or 11%. But the bandwidth is, is still pretty small. But there's another group of people that have, done, that have taken what I've said sort of and misinterpreted, I think. And they've said, well, Weisberg is saying that 5% of streets produces 50% of crime. Well, that's not what the low crime concentration says. It says, what percent of streets produce? But they went the other way and they said, what are 5% of streets in the city? And if you look at that, you're in the middle range of the distribution. And the distribution, John Hip has done this with colleagues. Ali has done this with colleagues. Overall, they find, by the way, 5% on average produce 50% of crime. But they find a much larger bandwidth. And I think the explanation for that is twofold. Number one, in the some of this work, the cities that they're looking at have relatively small numbers of crimes. In the hip piece, many of the cities are, are relatively small. They're, they're in the, the basin around LA. But the other reason I think is partially statistical. When you look at a distribution close to zero, you naturally get a, a more constrained distribution. And when you look at it in the middle, right, I think as you get a larger variability, that larger variability led me to say, well, can I explain that larger variability? So I'm doing this in the study now in which we're looking at this open source data which we have, well, I hope we'll have between 70 and 80 cities, we're going to be not only looking at the law of crime concentration, what percent of streets produce 50% of crime, and we're also going to measure it the other way. In other words, what are 5% of the streets produced? Although I think that's a kind of, I don't know, it's a kind of like pick and choose. Why not 6% or 8% or 10%? I don't know. It seems like that. But anyway, what I want to look at, though, is what characteristics of cities produce that variability? It's interesting, right? If you have greater inequality in the city, you have more concentration of crime. That's, I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah. And so that's the next step in the sort of agenda. I should note, working with someone in Italy, his name is Serena. I'm in trouble pronouncing her last name. Sorry, Serena. But, the, but where we've identified something like 200 cities in Europe that we'll be able to analyze about law of crime. And it might be interesting in Europe because in Europe, there's a 
the cities are different. They're not all like American cities, like laid out in the grid. And, you know, so I think that would produce some interesting finding. But that's the next step. Just so you don't think I'm, yeah. I'm being complacent. No. Yeah, it will be interesting to look in European cities because, yeah, they're not. They're kind of like all zigzaggy or in a circle how do you do or that, whatever. Right? Like, yeah. like, how do you do it? You know, how do you it's going to create new measurement issues. But that has already come up. You know, it's Serena Favrin. I hate to mention people, not get to pronounce her name. Okay, I get it. Right. Look, I think it's really important to acknowledge that people work. It's yeah. not like this is a David Weiss book. My research <laughs> is a collaborative effort between lots of really great people. And when I'm presenting, because I'm the senior leader of this group and many of these studies, yeah, no one should get the impression great work like this is done in collaboration with colleagues, often in collaboration with your students. All right. So let's shift gears. Kind of. It's, it's related, but let's discuss another one of your research interests and talk about your paper, Reforming the Police Through Procedural Justice Training, a Multi-City Randomized Trial at Crime Hotspots. And in this study, you randomized 120 crime hotspots across three cities in Arizona, Massachusetts, and Texas to a treatment or control group where the treatment hotspots were served by police officers who underwent procedural justice training or training to improve fairness and respectfulness towards citizens among officers. And, you know, procedural justice really seems to be kind of this hot button issue right now, or, you know, really out there, people are really interested in it, and has been for a number of years. And so Jose and I are curious what the motivation for writing and doing this paper was. Yeah, I think I have to go back quite a few years in a way to understand it. That's what I mean by keeping at it. When I observed this concentration of crime, there was a single street or two that caused a lot of the crime problem in these neighborhoods that was seen as problematic in terms of crime. Larry Sherman and I got together. I actually invited him to be a visiting professor at, uh, at Rutgers when I was there. And when I called him. We both were talking and we said, you know, I told him about my experience at Vera and he told me about work he was doing in Minneapolis. And we both said, if crime is concentrated, maybe we ought to concentrate policing. And that was important at the time because. I don't think your generation would get this, but when I was trained in graduate school, everybody believed the police could not prevent crime. That was the first page of a very famous book by David Bailey on policing, in which he said, you know, the researchers know it, practitioners, police know it, policymakers know it, no one wants to say it, but that's what we know. And Larry Sherman and I said, we don't know that. When I did this 72nd precinct study, I thought the police were actually having an effect at these streets that they spent a lot of time on. So that led us to develop the Minneapolis hotspots. It was a randomized trial because, you know, randomized trials have a cachet. You get a, a medicine approved by a randomized trial, not by any other method. There weren't many randomized trials, true randomized trials in policing at the time. Larry Sherman and I thought we could do it. Tony Boza was the chief in Minneapolis. He was a way out of the box kind of person, way out of the box. And he was willing and interested. And so we designed a study there, which you randomly allocated 120 hotspots of crime to treatment and control. And, the, and what the police did was we had police patrol focusing in on those hotspots. So the hotspots were supposed to get three to five times as much patrol as the, the treatment hotspots were supposed to get a lot more patrol than the control hotspots. It was a large, difficult experiment to, to keep in, in control. Chris Coper, another important criminologist today, was a PhD student of Larry's at the time and uh, did observations and helped with that work. But anyway, at the end of the experiment, we found a 20% reduction. I don't know if it was 20%. I think it was 15% reduction in crime 
but a fairly consistent, by the way, across the period the study was being conducted. And that was a large randomized trial showing that if the police focused in on hotspots, they could be effective in controlling crime. Now, that was the first of, of a, a long series of studies, of hotspots policing studies, but really important for getting this work started. By the way, that was published in Justice Quarterly, and I believe the most cited article in Justice Quarterly, interestingly enough. At the time we did it, like I remember people like, why are you studying policing? <laughs> but anyway, by 2004, there's a large group of these studies, replications. I did a group of them. Other people did. I did in Jersey City and uh, another study in Jersey City by Anthony Braga and I. But anyway, the study, the original study, Drug Hotspots with Lorraine Maserol. But anyway, 2004, the National Academy of Sciences concluded that the strongest evidence we have that the police can prevent crime is around the issue of crime hotspots. Remember, the Minneapolis study was just adding more police. It was just increased yeah. patrol. Over time, Anthony Brock eventually did a systematic review and has updated that systematic review. The 2018 panel of the National Academy of Sciences on proactive policing, in any event, there is very strong evidence now that hotspots policing will reduce crime without displacement. Whereas that, indeed, a study I did in Jersey City shows that you're more likely to get a diffusion of crime control benefits. Areas nearby get better than displacement. That's the background. So now, you know, when I started doing this, it was like, why are you doing this? What's going on? All of a sudden, by the 2000s, hotspots policing is the most evidence-based strategy of crime control in policing. But beginning not long after that, I'd suspect, but especially over the next decade, you begin to see concerns about the way police treat citizens. I first had contact with Tom Tyler, who this year received the Stockholm Prize in Criminology. But I first had contact with him in the 2004 National Academy of Sciences panel, which he was on and I was on. And I was intrigued by this idea of procedural justice, right? Uh, you should give citizens voice. You should treat them with dignity and respect. You should show trustworthy motives. And there's one more element to it that I'm missing, but you're right. It, it focuses around the idea of treating people with dignity and respect. No question. I thought, yeah, that's the way the police should treat them. As we begin to move closer to 2020, it becomes clear to me that people are beginning to think that the police don't treat people that way. Mm -hmm. And I think there's good reason with some of the things that we've seen to believe that there were problems. My experience with the police overall in hotspots policing has been relatively positive. Whereas I see police that want to help people. But that doesn't mean there aren't these problems out there. Now, if you take police and throw them onto a hotspot, what does that mean? Does that mean the problems are going to be exacerbated? There's not much evidence of that, but especially in the newspapers, I would say, Washington Post and elsewhere, this began to be a theme. In other words, I'll place the theme this way, that you had a choice. You could have crime control using hotspots policing or some other tactic, or you could have police reforms in which you get the police to treat people. And I said, that doesn't make sense to me. And it was me and Cody Teller, I should know from Arizona State originally. And we both said, he was a graduate student of mine when we started. We both said, wait a minute, that's not right. And that begins an effort to develop a randomized trial around the idea of procedural justice at hotspots. In other words, using the hotspots idea, but empowering hotspots policing, if you like, or infusing hotspots policing with procedural justice. By the way, we didn't, this wasn't easy. I mean, we put out three applications before we succeeded for funding, right? And finally, working with the National Policing Institute, at that time, the Police Foundation, we were able to do a study in which we could see if you could both have before, in other words, Rather than being contradictory, could you do both at the same time? 
So as you already described the study, we wanted to have three cities. Why three cities? Because one city, it could be the city, the police department, three cities gives you some greater ability to generalize uh, your work. So here we have a three-city randomized trial. It was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. I purposely pushed for that type of journal because I think this study, I want to see the study have importance beyond the sort of traditional criminological focus. PNAS is a general science journal, one of the most important general science journals. But anyway, in this study, we trained officers for, you've already described it, but maybe I say just a little more, that yes. we, in each city, we asked the department to assign between eight and 12 officers. The cities were different in the number. And then we took those officers, we matched pairs them, and randomly allocated them to treatment. In other words, we matched them if they were a young woman who was black, you know, we tried it wasn't so easy to use small numbers, but as much as possible, we wanted to have the officers to be well-matched. So some of them said, all the good guys got in the treatment, right? And then we, by the way, in, in the study, we then measured their attitudes towards uh, to certain elements of procedural justice. We didn't want to push them in a certain direction and other issues. We looked at other questions they answered, and it was not significantly different. In other words, we got a good balance. That wasn't the random allocation of the study. The important random allocation of the study is the hotspot. In each city, we identified 40 hotspots. We randomly allocated 20 treatment control in each of the cities. And then we took the, the groups, the randomly allocated groups, treatment control, and we matched, we put them with them. So we have a pretty good sense that we have some ability to rely on the assumption these groups are, if, if we find the difference at the end, it's going to be due to treatment. Now, in following through this, this study, and I don't know if you want me to talk about the results, but I think the results are great in terms of the question you asked. So yes. we measured a whole bunch of things. We had a lot. This study was supported by the Arnold Foundation. The National Police Institute also contributed to the study. They ran the field work. But I think the study had over $2 million. And that was just for the research, no programmatic elements. That's a lot of money to do our kind of research. We're not medicine. There's not as money around. But anyway, yeah. the here's the result. So the treatment officers in their hotspots treated citizens in much significantly more procedurally just ways, right? And it's hard to get this as a, an index, so it's a little hard. But if you know anything about Cones D, which is a standard measure of effect size, so the effect is about 0.40 in Cones D for procedural justice or individual measures as well. That's a really robust effect. Get a with uh, you know a 0.20 effect, which is quote called small in psychology, but in the field it's quite mm -hmm. robust. We're getting, you know, a 0.40 effect. It's a big effect. We train them to behave better, and they behave better. We, I should say something about the training, by the way. I think I was going, look, it was very intense. It was five days. We talked to them about hotspots, police legitimacy, procedural justice. We did in-depth reviews with videos of, you know, scenes of police doing things. We taught them about diverse populations. They, Treating people with respect may mean different things for different populations. And then we, we had to train them on the bureaucratic issues, which we also did, by the way, of the control group. So this was really intense training. But it resulted, we got much more procedurally just behavior. Our treatment group relatively made 60% fewer arrests. That is really interesting. Because arrest, you know, is not a good thing necessarily. Because mm -hmm. it leads to all this criminal justice processing and labeling and all this when we asked citizens, we did surveys of citizens on the streets, and citizens who lived on the treatment hotspots significantly less likely to say that police harassed or mistreated people on their streets. 
And we asked them, do the police on your street use unnecessary violence? And the treatment group was significantly less likely to say that they did. They didn't use unnecessary violence. Well, that's great news, right? Because I want police to treat people in a way where they feel respected, where they're treated with dignity, where they, citizens view them as not violent, not harassing. And that's what I think democratic police should do, no matter what they think. But then we ask the question, what about crime control? There was a 14% decline in crime relatively in the treatment hotspots versus the control hotspot. And remember, they're both the same number of officers trying to, both groups were told to reduce crime. So that's just, what that says to me is that you can sort of have your cake and eat it too. You can both yeah. reduce crime and treat people with respect and dignity. Indeed, if there wasn't any difference in crime, I would think this was great. But you actually get an increased benefit. Yeah, it's fantastic and great news. Yeah. It's great news, and I think it should be applied. We're doing some replication with the National awesome. Policing. Sounds so we'll great. see. We're, ha- we're trying to reduce the number of days of training because the police complain too much training. But I don't get it. Like, like it's five days. Inc- <laughs> like one incident of someone killing someone or something, treating people with disrespect is so bad. Forget killing it. If you preach people with disrespect, they don't like the police. They say bad things, et cetera. So you know, I give these guys that are assigned to hotspots, the places you have all these interactions, negative interactions with people. You don't want to give them four or five days of training. But anyway, police departments seem to be really stressed about that issue. Mm. Yeah. Well, I guess building off of that, you know, given everything that we just discussed, maybe you can go a little more into the implications of this work on research, policy, and practice. Look, I think the, there's tremendous opportunity to study crime in place because it hasn't been studied very much. When I teach my class, I say, well, you'd be the first person to ever look at that, right? When you study something everyone's been studying over and over and over again, that's what Frank Cohen said in his presidential address, which I would recommend you read. Like you, you study the same thing every time, like go to something new. It's not that that same thing is not important, but maybe you learn new things with something new. So I think I tell my students, I wrote this, I think in the 2015 article, that there's a tremendous opportunity to learn new things by studying crime place. So I encourage young people to do that. It's an area with tremendous opportunity. And you're going to apply it in a million different ways, I think, that are new, right? In terms of policy, I think there's already been a very big policy impact. Police departments all over the world know about hotspots police. Now, a lot of times the police don't. In America, most police departments still, I think when you ask them, they don't necessarily get it right. They don't understand the idea of crime concentration, which is interesting because they know the crime is contrary in certain communities. And if they thought more about it, they'd get it that it was contrary in certain streets. But they don't put it all together, I think, quite often. It's also, unfortunately, in policing, while there's a lot of use of evidence-based ideas, there's also a lot of not use of evidence ideas. But even, I think there's been a lot of impact, more than I thought. You know, I always thought of myself, more so than many of my students, as a sort of traditional ivory tower academic. But then I get invited to all these, like, to give the, you know, the plenary, a graduation of police officers in New Zealand or something. So I realized that this, these ideas are having impact. And I think they're having impact, by the way, because it's a story that makes sense. When I show you, show you that 5% of the streets produce 50% of the crime in these things, you say crime is concentrated. Well, if crime is concentrated and it's variable, it's heterogeneity across areas, then it means we should focus the FBI put out something like, you should go with a fish dog. That's the way they <laughs> describe it. I think that's not such a nice way to describe it. But nonetheless, yeah. the idea of focusing is, is clearly there. I think overall what's missing, and it's not only missing for the study of policing, NIH has a budget of over $40 billion. 
NIH, NIJ has a budget of something like 200 million, of which most of that is, you know, earmarked for certain things. I think the free budget for study is maybe 25 or 50 million. I don't know anymore. It's tiny compared to the National Institutes of Health. And we won't really be able to contribute to safety in society on a level that's required until we start having funding for research, evaluation in crime research, uh, like medical research. I would be happy with $5 billion, $40 billion. <laughs> But there's something wrong when a system that spends almost as much money as we spend on medicine has so little research associated. Most practices in uh, policing are not, and I think in corrections and other areas as well, have no science to it. We don't know why we're doing it, except for that's the way we've been doing it. So convincing policymakers to begin investing, they want the answers, by the way. I get this all the time. Like, they want the answers. Well, you have to pay for those answers. You have to invest to get those answers. That is a major impediment. I'll just give one more comment. I don't want to put all the blame for the lack of enough funding in criminal justice study to really contribute to safety in society and policy. Part of it also has to do, I think, to some degree with criminologists who often don't want to study the things that are about public safety, et cetera. There are many questions in policing that are not, you know, about key issues that we have that, you know, about a social structure or questions related to inequality. I'm obviously very interested in social context and social structure, but we need to study some of those things that are about how you do it. How many, I did a large randomized trial on shift work and we found that eight and 10 hours is okay a day, but more than 10 people begin to get tired and that's dangerous. Those kind of questions are really important. And some of those questions, by the way, get funded. Why? You think why they get funded? Because then they border on the medical side, right? Mm -hmm. So they get funded by by sort of medical groups that want to give money to work in collaboration with NIJ or on their own for these questions. So, yeah, so there's a need for the government to focus in on funding in criminal justice, which includes basic research funding, because how are we going to understand new things if we don't do studies of things like crime place, like basic funding about crime, et cetera, but also a lot of funding for practice and policy that would help us become really important actors in improving public safety. Absolutely. Were you going to say something? Nope. I mean, I was just going to agree. So (laughs) yeah, I think that's really, I mean, I do work in corrections and I think that that's critical that we are looking at the actual policies and practices that are happening. So I agree with you hundred percent. And across the board, not just the ones that seem to be interesting at the moment. The problem is that, and it's a tough issue because we don't want to become, criminology has a core set of questions that may not be so interesting to practitioners, by the way. If we want to be relevant, et cetera, we have to answer the questions that they need answering for improving public safety. Yeah. Well, those are all the questions we had for you today, David. We appreciate so much taking time out of your day to speak with us. Where can people find you if they want to maybe ask some questions or you know, talk to you about crime in place? I'm very easy to find on the internet. You can put on your, your group if you want my email. I would use dweisper at gmu. I'm happy for people to write. I get letters from teenage, from kids in high school, wow. you know, in school, you know, who write me. They've got a, they're supposed to talk about what they might want to do. A lot of times they think I, what I do is different from what I do, but yeah, you know, I'm happy to interact with people. And, uh, you know, if they have questions about my work or issues of that sort, I'm happky to respond. Perfect. Well, thank you again. Oh, we really do appreciate it. Yeah, it's been thank great you talking so much. to you guys. And no, have a good evening. Thank you very much. And thank you for the interview. You guys are 
an interesting group and ask interesting questions. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Or email us at thecrimacademy at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time. time.